This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, we love Hedda Barbera! Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, where we celebrate Bill Hannah, Joe Barbera, and the thousands with them, whose entertainment keeps entertaining generations. I'm Greg Airbar, and I thank you very much for joining me, and I'm with my special guest, John Semper Jr., one of animation's most successful and prolific writers. He has a voluminous list of credits, past and present. John Semper Jr., welcome to our fantastic world. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, there's just so much to talk about. I kind of like to start with the fabulous story of John Semper. So tell us about you and tell us about some of the things that you've done. Well, I've been working in animation for over 40 years. I've worked for pretty much every major animation company at one time or other. And I've done, oh, good grief, hundreds of episodes of cartoon shows. I've worked mostly in television. I have a few movie credits, but I've worked mostly in television for a good long time. And uh, I started my career at Hanna-Barbera. I worked on shows like Scooby-Doo, Smurfs, Biscuits. I love Biscuits. I love Biscuits, too. I love all... (laughs) Shecky! (laughs) (laughs) I worked on uh, Shirt Tales, if you remember Shirt Tales. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I've got the show and tells. Uh, I worked on uh, the Jetsons when they rebooted the Jetsons. And you did a very good Jetsons about the romance of George and Jane. Very good one. Thank you. I was very happy with that one. But I got started in animation. I actually began uh, originally as a uh, film editor. Basically, that was just one of the ways that I saw that I could get my foot in the door in an animation company. And I first worked for Ruby Spears. Yeah, I actually got hired by Ken Spears. And I worked editorial at Ruby Spears for two seasons. And then when we got laid off, which was just the way things work in the animation business, you'd work so many months and then you'd get laid off. It was very seasonal. Um, a, A whole bunch of us went over to Hanna Barbera. And so I started out in the editorial department at Hanna Barbera, which was really cool. I had grown up loving Hanna-Barbera cartoons and watching them pretty religiously. So to actually be where the cartoons were being made and surrounded by all the people who had made the cartoons of my childhood, that was a really big deal. Actually, I have to go back even further. Mm-hmm. As I'm originally from Boston, I came out to L.A. from Boston. And uh, before I did that, I visited L.A. And one of my friends was Dave Stone, who eventually became an Academy Award-winning sound effects editor. But at that time, he was working in the basement at Hanna-Barbera. So my very first visit to Hanna-Barbera was to visit Dave 
and just see the place, you know. So he took me on a little bit of a tour, and that was very exciting. When I finally moved out to Los Angeles, I was working for a fellow, a producer by the name of Sheldon Renan. Mm -hmm. And Sheldon had a job working for an investment counseling firm. They wanted him to prepare an investigative report because one of their clients wanted to buy an animation company. So Sheldon, literally within days of, of arriving out here to work for Sheldon, with whom I had worked in Boston, I'd done a TV project with him in Boston. So when he found out that I was moving to L.A., he immediately wanted me to join him in this project. So within days of moving out here, I was meeting such luminaries as Chuck Jones. Mm-hmm. I met uh, Ruby and Spears. We met um, Bill Melendez. Wow. And all with the idea that they knew that Sheldon represented someone who was looking to buy an animation company. And animation companies are always looking for an infusion of cash. So we were able to meet all the top tier people. Lou Scheimer of Filmation. Oh, nice guy. Yeah, great guy. When we were coming to Hanna-Barbera, we met with Art Scott, who was one of the executives at Hanna-Barbera at that time. Yes. So this is before I was working there or anything. The very first thing I ever did at Hanna-Barbera was Art invited us to watch a Flintstones recording session. So literally within you know a week of arriving in L.A., I found myself sitting at the recording studio in front of Henry Corden, Gene Vanderpile, Mel Blanc. And I was watching a Flintstones being recorded. That was very, very cool. Okay, so rewind. When it came time to go actually go out and look for a job when Sheldon's report was done, I went back to all the people that I had felt that I had a good rapport with. And one of them was Lou Scheimer. And he offered me a job as a storyboard artist. But I didn't think I was good enough to do that. And I went back to Ken Spears. And he offered me a job working in the editorial department which I requested. and Which he, is where he began. That's right. And I did get that job, and I worked that job, as I said, for two seasons. And we all matriculated over to Hanna-Barbera, and that started my actual career in Hanna-Barbera. So at that time, they were doing things like, they just started doing Smurfs. I actually edited the pilot for Smurfs. One of my jobs was syncing up the soundtrack Mm-hmm. with the picture and soundtracks recorded then nine months later the picture arrives from overseas and someone had to sync that up and that was pretty much what i did mm-hmm. so i did that for all the shows that were in production at that time i did it for scooby i did it for smurfs i did it for quickie koala oh was- oh gosh floyd norman worked on that yeah. and tex avery what a great show yeah it was great you know meeting tex and and working with him and then once i got these shows in sync i would clean them up and then screen them for the network people. So I got to know, usually sitting uh, behind the moviola, screening for the network people, the producers would come in. So I got to know all of the producers. There was Gerard Baldwin, who was doing uh, Smurfs. Yeah. Kay Wright was doing a show. Alex Lovey was doing a show. Wow. These are powerhouses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to know all these guys. And I had some appreciation for who they were because I had been... In Boston, I had been a kind of a cartoon historian, and I had written articles about animation and things of that sort. So I actually did know who these people were. But I got this wonderful education in what made a network-approved cartoon, Mm -hmm. what it was that Hanna-Barbera was making at that time for the networks that was getting through the process and ending up on the air. Mm -hmm. That was a marvelous education. I did take a writing course that H&B offered that Harry Love taught 
I've met him, yeah. Very interesting guy. A lot of interesting guys. Sometimes I wish that I had simply walked through the building and interviewed everyone that was there at that time because so many of the talents that were there were people who had worked with Bill and Joe at MGM. Yes. Worked on all those classic Tom and Jerry cartoons. Some of them were uh, Disney people. I always tell the story that later when I became a writer at Hanna-Barbera, I had an office and on my wall I had a calendar that had... uh, Disney drawings. Mm -hmm. And some of them were crude drawings that were uh, original animation sketches. And one of them was of uh, Mickey, Donald and Goofy in the classic cartoon, The Clock Cleaners. Yes. Yeah, it's a great cartoon. There was a fellow by the name of Chuck Couch who came into my office and he was walking toward me. And I, I didn't have any particular relationship with Chuck. So I was kind of surprised that he was walking into my office. And he kind of walked toward me and then his gaze shifted over to the bulletin board next to me where the calendar was mm-hmm. and he's looking at this drawing of mickey donald and goofy and he goes yeah yeah that's one of mine oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> that was a kind of history that i was immersed in at that particular moment so anyway i did take the writing class with harry but that didn't really result in anything for me what happened was I ended up uh, leaving Hanna-Barbera working as an editor in live action, Mm -hmm. ended up at Universal working on features. And then during that time, my significant other, Cynthia Friedlow, whom I frequently refer to as my emotional support human. uh, (laughs) I love that. I'm going to use it for my wife. You may use use that. (laughs) We had met at Hanna-Barbera and she was working in the executive offices. And they were doing a round of layoffs in the executive offices. And Margaret Lesh, who was in charge of Mm -hmm. everything at Hanna-Barbera at that time, Margaret didn't like firing people. So what she would do is she would turn to them and say, well, you're no longer going to be working here, but great news. I'm going to make you a writer. Mm -hmm. Of course, many of these people really didn't know anything about writing cartoons. And so they'd shift over to writing and then eventually disappear. And so Cynthia came home one day and said, I've been let go. And I said, really? You know, you got laid off? And she said, well, they offered me an opportunity to be a writer, but I'm I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, yeah, we should mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's an opportunity. And I know how to write a cartoon. I've been sitting with all the producers and I've studied animation and I know animation history. So let's do it. Just go back and tell them you'll do it. So she did. She went back and she said, OK, I'm going to take you up on your offer. And we ended up selling about four Scooby-Doo's to ABC that year. Mm. ABC decided that they really liked us as writers. And uh, we became a writing team. And we wrote for um, Scooby-Doo and maybe one other show that I can't remember at that time. And that was freelance for me. So I was writing at night. And then I was going to work at Universal during the day. And Cynthia would go to work at Hanna-Barbera. She had an office there as a writer. And then finally, I think Margaret said, well, who is this John Semper that you're writing with and selling all these shows? Because the fact that we were selling stuff was what made us really significant. And Cynthia said, well, he used to work in editorial and now he's working at Universal. And she said, well, make him an offer and tell him to come over here and be on staff. So they did. And I did. I left the movie that I was working on at Universal and came over to Hanna-Barbera. And that started my career as a staff writer Mm -hmm. at Hanna-Barbera. And I was there as a staff writer for about two, three seasons, which was a pretty good stretch. It ended 
when Margaret left Hanna-Barbera to go work at Marvel Productions, yes, and she took a bunch of us writers with her, and Cynthia and I were two of the writers that she took to Marvel with her. So my history with H&B is a pretty good one, because not only did I work downstairs and get to know it from the technical side and work with all the technical people, but I also then worked with all the creatives upstairs. And the thing I loved about H&B at that time was you could literally walk through the building. So if I wrote a cartoon, I could literally walk through the building and watch it as it went through the various stages of production, because even though they were shipping a lot of stuff overseas, they were still doing a certain percentage of their work right there in the Hanna-Barbera building. So I saw background artists draw my backgrounds, and I saw the guy who photographed everything, photographed the cells. And it was, again, a wonderful experience, wonderful learning experience. Is that Frank Paker? He, his name. I read these credits and memorize them. Yeah. Who, who the cameraman is. The, That's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm one of those people, if I didn't see the credits at the beginning and the end, I didn't see the movie or the show. If you look at any Hanna-Barbera cartoon, you will see a who's who from all the way back to Van Buren and Fleischer and Lance and Disney. Yeah. So it's mind-boggling yep. who was under that roof. You mentioned Margaret not liking to fire people. I think she was in the tradition, the culture of the company, because one of the things I got out of reading both Joe and Bill's books, especially Joe's, was they never got over getting booted from MGM because yep. they wanted to stay forever. They thought, oh, we're we're all set. You know, we've got a hit thing and all. And Cho describes, you know, not being able to walk in those hallways and how am I going to get used to this? It haunted him. Yep. And, and they were depression guys. So they knew what it was like to go from studio to studio to do a job you didn't like, like being a banker, <laughs> which he hated. And that was infused into the building because... They wanted to keep those doors open. They wanted their people to work. And as much as they could, they wanted to keep it not outsourced. And even when it was outsourced, Bill flew out and supervised it and helped with the timings and stuff. Um, even to this day, I talked to Spike Brandt mm -hmm. about the direct-to-videos. They're hand-drawn. And while they are shipped uh, overseas for the perfunctory animation, mm -hmm. the real key scenes, the ones that make you go, whoa, are done by people or done by people like Dale Bear and local experts because those are the toughies. So you are still seeing master animation in those and yeah. quite good. Uh, but budget limits how much of that you can use. But it's there. Yeah. So that's very nice to hear that she said, I'm not going to let that door close. And yeah. Bill and Joe, though, people would walk out and then they'd come back. And it was like, fine, you know, you're back. And no matter what it was, even sometimes if it was rancorous, it's so what? Come back. We got work to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Get the stuff done. It really was. It was very much a great place for people who had devoted their lives to the industry. And I really I recognized that when I was there, I was surrounded by so much history so much animation history, it was sometimes even hard to take in. There were just so many people who had worked on Disney features and the classic shorts. And and then, of course, my own childhood wrapped up in watching Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Mm. It was really a hoot to end up writing for people like John Stevenson or Mel Blanc. Yeah. Or, you know, Hear them saying your words. Yeah, it was really, really very, very trippy. Very cool. 
or to catch Jack Mercer on the way out of a recording session and go up and shake his hand, the voice of Popeye. It was a great time mm -hmm. for someone like me to get into the animation business because so many of those people were still around. Yep. You know, you talk about learning from the ground up, which is a great way to do it because like Ruby and Spears, you started in the edit area and you do see the bare bones, how it is put together. You talked about the Oscar nominated sound effect. A lot of people who were at H be went on to be oscar winners you know i like to point out that austin roberts who wrote those groovy songs for the second season of scooby-doo he won an oscar for a place in the heart mm -hmm. it was very much uh like nasa it was a launching pad yes and yeah and how those things fit together and those iconic sound effects mm -hmm. that you know where they came from and when you hear them in like a live action movie we're watching some movie the other day and it's like the car screeching my wife says flintstones <laughs> all those sound effects were lined up on shelves and it was such a hoot to be able to pull the roll off i did do a little bit of effects cutting when i was there and there were people like dave stone was there mark mangini who has gone on to have a phenomenal career in motors mark was there at that time it was just a wonderful hotbed of young talent. I think things were changing. There was a transition going on. So it was transitioning from the old guard. So you had writers like Bob Ogle who were there and uh, various people. And then it was sort of a lot of us young people that were coming in and were kind of starting our careers. And, you know, Tom Ruger was there and, uh, yeah. you know, people like that. So it was really just a great moment to be on staff at Hanna-Barbera. There was that mix of experience with youthful zest and enthusiasm because it wasn't ageist. And in an industry that can be, they brought in experienced people because they knew they'd add a certain something that new people couldn't. And that's the way Tony Benedict talked about it when he worked on the Jetsons. He said, you felt like you could just do anything. And there was this support for your ideas. I still think that existed. And what is remarkable about any of their works, no matter how anybody may feel about it, is because of all that talent and because of the leadership there, it was still entertaining. And even going back to some of them, you think, well, OK, even in the imperfection, there was perfection. There was something so appealing yeah. about those cartoons. Yeah. I mean, you know, from the design by Iwo. Mm hmm. And another genius that I probably took for granted. What a guy, <laughs> you know, I had, yeah. I had lunches and dinners with Iwo. He had the ability to capture a certain look and style in all of the Hanna-Barbera product. And keep in mind that all of these characters had to be designed to be broken down into parts so that they could be animated as inexpensively as possible. The legs mm -hmm. could be animated on one cell and the mouth could be animated on another but I think that there was a genius in the way that he designed these characters. And clearly, they all appealed to kids almost immediately. And for a factory process, they really honed and perfected it so that you didn't lose personality and charm. Mm -hmm. You worked on Super Friends, the legendary power show. That, um, that was fun for me. You know, I was I think I'm interviewed on a couple of the DVD releases uh, or at least one of them. I was there at Hanna-Barbera, and they were looking for people to come over. And uh, I think Alan Burnett was working there uh, at that time, and he was doing Super Friends, and he was looking for people who were interested in writing on it, who were on staff. 
And I had always had a big interest in superhero stuff, even though I had been pegged as a comedy writer at that point because of getting in via Scooby. So, no, I was very happy to work on Super Friends. That was a lot of fun. I even sneaked in a George Lucas reference. Uh-huh. What did I have? I think the enemy was coming in. It was taking place in outer space, and the enemy was coming in from Space Sector 1138 which is, of course, the reference to THX 1138. It's also referenced in Star Wars when they say prisoner transfer from cell block 1138. So I thought I'll throw in a Lucas reference. That'll be kind of fun. But no, that was fun. I worked on shows like The Little Rascals. Did you remember that? I'm sure you did. Oh, oh, yes, I did. Yeah, that was tacked on to Richie Rich and Scooby for a while. That's right. So actually, let me walk you through a little bit of uh, some material that I have that I'm going to share with you. If you don't mind, um, please. Now we're on audio, so we'd have to describe it vividly. I thought you would appreciate this. For those of you who are on audio, this is a cell sheet, and the inscription is "The Mark of Scooby Dooby Doo," and it was signed by Don Messick. The Mark of Scooby. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big Zorro fan, and I was always looking for ways to make Scooby interesting. And I thought, well, I'm going to turn Scooby into Zorro. Oh, wow. He got bonked on the head and went back in time and ended up having an adventure in old California <laughs> as uh, Zorro. That was uh, Scooby-Doo Mysteries. Okay, there I am. This is my very first screen credit on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. I was the, the sound effects editor on a show called The Laverne and Shirley Show. Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams, they were in the Army, yeah. And it was also, uh, this was also connected to Fonz and the Happy Days gang. Uh-huh. I got credited as working on those two shows. In point of fact, I worked on everything that was going on at Hanna-Barbera at that time. So I worked on Scooby, worked on Flintstones. Uh, I worked on everything that was going on uh, at Hanna-Barbera editorially. But this was my first credit. Um, the next one that I'm going to show you. This is Nurse Scooby. Now that's Scoobsy. Scoobsy. <laughs> My very first Scooby-Doo cartoon. This was the first one that we wrote. And again, I got this cell signed by Don Messick, the voice of Scooby-Doo. Scoobsy was a takeoff on the Dustin Hoffman movie Tootsie. <laughs> guy who couldn't get a job working on television. And so he pretended to be a woman and got a job on a soap opera. So this was Scooby-Doo pretending to be a woman so that he could get a job on a soap opera and solve the mystery. So anyway, this was my very first Scooby-Doo cartoon, and and I got this cell sheet autographed by Don. I have the full design packet for the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. This was probably the one that people remember the most in a way. I did a lot of the Scooby and Scrappies, but 13 Ghosts, we had the great pleasure of working with Vincent Price. Mm. Getting to meet Vincent Price was very cool and very exciting. One of the controversial things that I brought up when I've been interviewed about Scooby-Doo is I actually really like Scrappy-Doo. Well, you're not alone. It's just not cool to say it, I guess. My sister thought he was adorable, and I have no problem with Scrappy. I think it's sort of... I like Scrappy from a writing perspective because Scooby, after a while, became a bit formulaic in terms of the things that he would do. He would be frightened. He would run. He would eat Scooby snacks. But Scrappy was really kind of fun because he was always ready to dive in and just tackle anything. And you could, from a writing perspective, you could actually do a little bit more with Scrappy. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I get a lot more humor out of Scrappy sometimes than Scooby. But anyway, uh, very controversial that I oh yes. I like <laughs> the Scrappy files. <laughs> this is the first page 
of uh, one of the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo episodes that I wrote called Me and My Shadow Demon. This is the first page of the storyboard. And as you can see, I got it autographed by Vincent Price. Ah, now that is a storyboard with typed information underneath. When you wrote, did you write it as a script and then put the words underneath And after you got the board? How did the process work when you were a writer, not a uh, board artist? Or did you do both? We wrote scripts. I was not a board artist. I decided not to pursue that as a career because I did not think I was a good enough artist. Uh, and I'm totally correct in that assessment. So I became a script writer. And that was a very big deal. It was very hard to get to write cartoons back in those days because they did not think that most people would have the ability to understand what was required. Back in those days, the way that, you know, Bill Hanna was always about saving money. And in the early days of Hanna-Barbera, the scripts were actual storyboards written by storyboard artists. They were essentially the writers of the scripts. Right. But at some point, Bill Hanna realized that it was cheaper to have a writer write than it was to have a storyboard artist draw. And it was also faster. So the thing that they did was they trained us to think visually the way a storyboard artist would think. We had to get it down as words on paper. It resulted in very long scripts because we broke literally every shot down. We broke down every shot. You could not write a cartoon script the way they're written today, where you just sort of vaguely indicate what you want, and then some poor storyboard artist has to go break it down. We had to pre-visualize everything as writers. Mm -hmm. The storyboard artists were under strict rules and discipline to not veer from the script at all. So the reason you see the printed page underneath this storyboard is because as a script writer, I would write exterior of the Himalayan mountains, night wide on mountains, as camera pans across their windswept snow-covered peaks, a drift of snow swirls up from the ground in front of the camera and then exits OS. And that's literally what you see happening here. Mm-hmm. As it pans over, camera stops on the huge full moon that has just risen over the horizon In the foreground in silhouette against the moon is a wolf. In the background in silhouette is the shape of an ancient temple carved out of the Rock of the Mountains. That's literally what you see. So my words get translated into what they draw. You have to keep it as detailed as you possibly can, keeping in mind the brevity of the uh, show. Yeah. Well, we understood that roughly two pages of script equaled a minute. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's against the common wisdom. The common wisdom in in screenwriting is one page equals a minute. But we had 20-minute episodes that would run 40, sometimes 50 pages. We had 11-minute episodes that would run 25, 30 Mm -hmm. pages. So really, the most important thing was understanding how to visually break everything down. We were the storyboard artists. We just didn't draw. You drew it in your head. You have to be picturing this as a movie in your mind. Yeah, you do. That, I mean, that's. I think that was the greatest training. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why I think animation writers, those of us who started back in that era, that's why I think we are actually better than live action writers in a lot of ways, because we do pre-visualize much more specifically than a lot of live action writers do. And I sometimes envy a live action writer who can write 
they fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or there's a battle and uh, someone else has to break it all down. We had to break everything down and we had to know how to write that way. Uh, in addition to writing characters and dialogue and... You know, I, I want to interject something here that relates to that. I wrote the graphic novel adaptation of The Incredibles. And you, when you write those, you get the script far before anything's fully recorded, very little is uh, animated. So while that's cool, there's not a whole lot to go by because they will have minimal action information. Yeah. So when I finished... They said, we're going to have to get you the information so you can describe the action because there's going to be frames and frames of that on every page of the comic book. So I went to Pixar and I sat down with Mark Andrews. Brad Bird directed it, but he was working with him. And he actually was sketching out stuff to show me while he was describing what was happening. And I took that and made it into script form because that way the comic artists would be able to do it but it was just like what you said stuff happens they have a fight and then, <laughs> and then he was like i need to know more <laughs> you know I'm, I'm producing a show now and i work with a lot of young writers and they don't really understand how to pre-visualize anything and they don't understand the problem is that if you don't understand how animation works or what the limitations are you have a tendency to write something very complicated that simply can't be animated or can't be animated efficiently. Mm -hmm. And they don't think things through, and that is a huge problem in the production process. Because even though there's so much more you can do with CGI and there's a lot more money being spent, it's still TV animation. There are still limitations. And thinking this way has always been, I think, one of my greatest abilities, which is that I can pre-visualize a cartoon before it gets made, uh, and a lot of young writers simply can't or don't even... I was talking with a writer recently on the show that I'm doing, and I said to her, um, do you know how a cartoon is made? And she said, quite candidly, John, I have no idea how a cartoon is made. Well, she was honest. Yeah, absolutely, um, and, I th and that's a good starting point. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know how you can write animation without understanding some fundamentals about how a cartoon is made. It's an interesting thing. Anyway, um, we would write the script, and then immediately the script, once it was finalized, would get handed off to a storyboard artist, and they would start working. And if they had questions, they'd call you up and say, I don't understand what's going on here. And you'd better know. Mm -hmm. You'd better know what you had written, you know, because if if you had tried to fudge it, yeah, <laughs> it caught. Anyway, there you go. Oh, that is, that's fascinating. And that's a process that isn't talked about and is... I would venture to uh, presume is another Hanna-Barbera innovation because of what they learned doing the 11 minute and a half hour week after week format. Because if you watch the Flintstones, Top Cat and the Jetsons, you will see the evolution of the television sitcom cartoon with Johnny Quest, the action cartoon that even though there were 30 minute uh, special animated features in theaters. They weren't regular. They were specials. So with Flintstones, it had to be on every week. You had to sustain the characters, but you still had to be visual. It couldn't just be talking heads. Right. And you can see how, and this was Barbara's talent, getting action in 
getting laughs from visuals, funny expressions. And Top Cat, they struggled with the most because they went for high sophistication. They wanted to be very adult. And they found that there wasn't as much opportunity to do gags and action. So all of that was an evolution that came from that studio. Absolutely. You know, that is another thing also that bothers me is there was a period at Disney where a guy like me couldn't get hired because I had not written sitcoms. They had decided that they only wanted sitcom writers. I always thought that was so idiotic. Really? Yes, because sitcom writers write for a bunch of people in a room and it's all dialogue, and then they might move to another room, and it's all dialogue, and then they might move back to the first room, and it's all... Mm -hmm. And they don't, again, they don't think in terms of physical business that keeps the the whole thing moving. Even to this day, I see a lot of animation writing that's essentially sitcom writing, with people saying things, usually now outrageous things, and just constantly talking. I have a rule which is that if you exceed four physical lines in a script of dialogue in a given scene, you're going to start boring people because it's very boring to look at a static 2D graphic flapping its mouth away. You know, I would always tell my writers, you got to keep it moving. You got to find physical business to keep these characters involved. And I, again, I get a lot of writing from young writers who think that they can just write dialogue. Not even young writers, actually. I have an older writer that I'm working with recently uh, who comes from the world of live action and playwriting. And again, you get a script that's essentially six pages of dialogue with very little happening physically. That's not a good animation script. It can be turned into one, but you really do have to be able to choreograph physical business in order to make a cartoon work. So are you um, are you currently um, I know you had a lot of meetings this week. and It was hard to get in touch with you. Um, so there must be lots of new stuff going on or I'm as an animation writer. We are not in animation. We are not in the Writers Guild. We are in the Animation Guild, Animation Union. Oh, the 839. Yes. Yeah. So uh, because the writing of cartoons started with story men and story men were those guys who drew storyboards. So as we were inducted into the world of animation as story men, we were not considered writers, which is really kind of ironic because that's all I've ever done. Mm. But any effort to get animation writers into the WGA has always been rebuffed by whatever parties are involved. Uh, I am in the WGA as a live action writer, but I am not in, you know, I'm not represented in the WGA as an animation writer. Therefore, I can work. That's all legal and mandated. And, you know, the union has said, yes, animation writers can work. And I'm actually quite busy right now because I'm executive producing and being the head writer for a new animated show that I'm doing for PBS. Yeah, it was created by Al Roker. Oh, he loves cartoons. He loves them. Yeah, this is one of his big dreams is to do the show that I'm doing right now. It's called Weather Hunters, and we will probably be on the air in uh, 2024 or you know, late 2024, or early 2025. So, Oh, that's so cool, because he, uh, he truly is a true believer in the... He's uh, a great guy, and he's been working on getting this show on the air for a decade. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and I've been attached to it for a couple of years. So we are, we're finally doing it, and it's probably going to be a lot of fun. Now, he's a weatherman, so he thinks visually. 
Yeah, he is. He thinks visually and he's got a good sense of personality and telling a good family story. And uh, he's very involved in the show. And we're having a lot of fun making what we think will be a really good show. By the way, I should mention, I'm a big fan of yours. Me? What did I ever do? <laughs> write fantastic articles about all the great uh, animation, uh, you know, inspired albums. Oh, you re- actually read that? Thank you. I appreciate that. All your, your articles that you've written for um, Jerry Beck's site and cartoon research and, and all of that kind of stuff. I think that scholarship is so valuable. You know, finding out little things like the songs that Disney had planned for his Wizard of Oz, whatever he was going to do, feature or TV special or whatever, that that appears on an album. You know, to know that kind of thing is really, I think, very valuable. I'm not only am I a Disney fan, but I'm an Oz fan. And Me too. Yeah, little bits and pieces like that. Here's one for you. There was a Hanna-Barbera album that I've been trying to track down where Pixie and Dixie sang a song about Jinxie, where they went, Jinxie, oh, Jinxie, no wonder you're sad. Remember, oh, I know, right, yeah. Good times with Jinxie we had. What album is that? It's Huckleberry Hound and the Ghost Ship. Huckleberry Hound and the Ghost Ship. Yeah, and that was actually written by Dawes Butler and Don Messick and, and starred Dawes, Don, and Doug Young. And those are the two albums he's probably proudest of and, and his son Chaz is most proud of because they did it themselves. It was also innovative because it was the first time outside of comic books and uh, storybooks where all the characters were together in one adventure, you know, long before Yogi's Gang. It's like 62 all this is going to be in the book that's coming out next year about all of this. Those were the Colpix records, and those were two original comedies that they wrote. And the other one is uh, Quick Drummer Gras, The Treasure of Sarah's Mattress, which is also very funny. But yeah, Pixie and Dixie sing this sort of a cappella lament because Jinxie gets captured by the ghost. I know it by heart. We realize what our friendship meant. He wasn't all bad, only 90%. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I love that. It would make a great special or something. You know, there's a lot of these albums that would make great specials that were just like, couldn't you just see Yogi Bear and the Three Stooges meet the Mad Mad Dr. No-No as a uh, as a half-hour special and just Absolutely. edit them? Because the elements exist. The master tapes exist and just animate it. I mean, that's a, mm-hmm. some of that stuff is wildly strange. Their label was odd but wonderful uh, in the mid-'60s. I follow everything you write, so I'm... Oh, I'm, that's so nice, because you, you're out there writing, and there are nice people who write comments, but you you never know where it goes, and I love these these records dearly, and even the ones that aren't so great, I still enjoy, but the most important thing when you do historical research is you want to bring attention to a lot of people who uh, aren't as well-known, or at least connect the dots who was the great um, Lionel Wilson. I did a tribute to him. Nobody talks about Lionel Wilson, and he was Tom Terrific, but he also did these cool Peter Pan albums where he was Funky Phantom. It wasn't Dawes Butler, but it was still Lionel Wilson. So when you know who's behind these things, they're still very fun and cool. And I think it's been eight, nine years I've been writing that for Jerry. Um, and it's... it's uh, Incredibly important, and you're the only one doing it. Thank you. Thank you for that unsolicited endorsement. And I'm going to thank you now. I I will definitely do this again, but I want to thank you now for being on Fantastic World of Hannah and Barbara John Semper Jr., John Semper Jr., 
My pleasure. Um, you're listed sometimes on, as just Semper, but it is Junior. And I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the Fantastic World of Hanna-Barbera. If you enjoyed this episode, want to hear more, please click subscribe or like. Uh, please tell your friends. And if you have any questions about Hanna-Barbera, visit us on the Fantastic World of Hanna-Barbera podcast Facebook page. And we'll do what we can to get the answers. This is Greg Airbar. Thank you for joining us.